And we're going to look at Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And we'll just read these in unison, pausing at the punctuation marks. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. The Word of God says, And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth of the Word of God. Thank you for um, Christ, the Savior, and how much the Bible teaches, not just about what He accomplished for us, but who He is and what He's doing today. And I just pray You'd open the eyes of our understanding and help us know as we search the Word that we have an amazing Savior who did so much for us and is still working on our behalf today, and may we be forever grateful. Lord, if anybody's not saved or born again who would hear this message, that they'd be under conviction and that they would see their need of Christ and trust in His death, burial, and resurrection to save them, and that every child of God would have more reason to praise our wonderful Savior. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. These are interesting verses. We won't go into the the entire book of Zechariah and its purpose, but the minor prophets, the little books after the major prophets, the little books uh, between the major prophets and the, the New Testament are filled with wonderful truths that we all need to know. We actually did a Sunday school lesson series on that some years ago talking about each book and bringing out some highlights of it, but some wonderful truths here. But here in Zechariah chapter 6, we see a prophecy concerning the coming of the Messiah. And so you see that he's speaking about someone who is going to be called the branch. And I love how the Bible does this in all caps. That's not a publisher's note, but God had inspired this name to be given in all caps where we can see the emphasis on this name. If you turn back a page or two to Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8, the Bible here again is talking about the branch to a man named Joshua who was the high priest at the time. And Zechariah 3 8 says, Hear now, O Joshua, uh, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit there before thee, for they are men wondered at, For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And so we see the branch mentioned a few times here in the book of Zechariah. But notice that the branch would be the servant of Jehovah. And he would have specific tasks to do. Another portion of scripture, Jeremiah chapter 23 verse 5 talks about that Christ would be a root of Jesse out of dry ground. That Christ would be a root or a branch. And of course here it's talking about Jesus Christ. The Messiah would be the branch. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And the branch is uh, the servant of Jehovah. Now we're not going to take time to show you the four things, what it means Christ being the branch. We just want to show you that He is the branch 
as we move on to the thought for today. Now notice that this branch in verse 13 uh, well, let's read. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. Now, the temple of the Lord had to do with, with worship and sacrifice. And he shall bear the glory and shall rule upon his what? His throne. Now, watch this next line. And he shall be priest upon his throne. So, wait a minute. This branch was going to be a priest this branch was going to be a king. It's very unusual for someone to be a priest and a king. But then it goes on to talk about the council of peace, and that speaks of the prophet. And so here in this verse, we see that the branch would be the prophet, the priest, and the king. And this is significant because Jesus Christ is the only human who ever fulfilled those three offices at the same time, prophet, priest, and king. And this morning I want to show you from the scriptures that Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, and I want to show you why that's significant and also what that means for us. And so there were three offices through which God interacted with his people in the Old Testament. There was the prophet, the priest, and the king, and they each had separate functions. So a prophet represents God to the people. A prophet represents God to the people. The prophet tells the people what God says and encourages the people to obey God. That's the job of the prophet. The priest represents the people to God. So it's kind of an inverse relationship. The prophet represents God or represents God to the people. The priest represents the people to God. So the, the priest offers sacrifice for sin. He prays to God on the behalf of others. So the prophet represents God to the people, and the priest represents the people to God. And then the third office we see is the king. Now, a king rules the people according to God's will and purposes. Don't miss this. The king was supposed to rule the people according to God's will. Now, what we find throughout history is that often kings would rule the people according to their own will, right? But the king was supposed to be the sovereign representative of God acting as God would if he were in the king's place. By the way, that's the way you and I should act every day. A wonderful prayer to pray is to pray, Lord, help me to live today as you would live if you were walking in my shoes. Mm -hmm. That's a prayer that each one of us should pray regularly. Lord, help me to live today as you would live if you were walking in my shoes. That kind of prayer will change how you live. Change how you talk, change how you treat people, change an awful lot of things. And so we've got to be careful about these issues, don't we? Now, throughout scriptures, there were good examples of these offices and there were bad ones. So the good ones fulfilled their offices according to the will of God. The bad ones held these offices, but they acted according to their own desires to fulfill their own lusts. For example, Elijah was a faithful prophet. You know, in the Old Testament, Elijah, he was a faithful prophet. He told the people not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. 
He told the people what God told them to say. Now, sometimes that got him in trouble. Sometimes it got a price on his head. Sometimes it got the king or the king's wife, Jezebel, that said, by this time tomorrow, you're going to be a dead man for saying that and for doing these things. All throughout the scriptures, we see prophets getting in trouble for telling sinful people what God said, but the sinful people didn't want to hear it. Amen. By the way, people still mad at preachers today for that. If I'm going to be a faithful preacher, I have to tell you what God said, regardless of how you feel about it. Amen. So rather than be upset at, at me, how about have some compassion, right? Because I don't have a choice. If I'm going to do what God tells me to do, I have to say what God tells me to say. Does that make sense to you? And so Elijah was a faithful prophet. Balaam was a false prophet. Balaam was a prophet who a, a, the king of Moab hired to try to curse Israel. Now, the, the interesting thing was, is that Balaam was for sale. Some preachers today are for sale, aren't they? Balaam was for sale, but when it came time to curse the people of God, God literally wouldn't let him do it. But what we find later in the scriptures is Balaam did give the sinful king the secret to destroying them, destroying the children of Israel. And basically the secret that destroyed Israel is still what the devil is using to destroy God's people today. And that is this, God will never curse his own people, but God will punish his people for sin. So all you have to do is get God's people to sin and then God will punish them. Then God will curse them. The Bible in the Old Testament talks about the curses that God would place upon His people if they didn't obey Him. By the way, still happening today. Did you know that a church can't be murdered, but it can commit suicide? There's nothing from outside this church that can destroy Curtis Corner Baptist Church. It stood strong for 180 years. 1842, folks, we're talking about... Uh, we had people that were in this community that served in the Civil War. Think about that. Civil War, World War I, World War II, all the craziness, the Great Depression. Curtis Corner Baptist Church is still standing today because nothing from the outside can ever destroy God's church. But God's church can destroy themselves from the inside. And we see an awful lot of churches... Just talking to someone yesterday, we we're talking about a church that I didn't know the church had dissolved. The church, uh, boy, uh, 40 years ago would have 500 on a Sunday. And today it doesn't exist. This is in New England, 500 in New England, that's different than 500 down south. No longer exists. And that hurts my heart. But if we're not careful, same thing can happen to us, but it won't be because of something out there. It'll be because of what's in here. Does that make sense to you? And so there are faithful prophets and there are false prophets. By the way, today, faithful preachers and there are false preachers. We've got to be careful of that. All right, then we see the priest represents the people to God. But wait a minute. Eliezer was a faithful priest. He conducted himself according to uh, the, the will of God. But Nadab and Abihu, were, they so misused the office of the priest that God killed them. God literally made them drop dead. 
They were so wicked. You have a faithful priest and a sinful priest. A king is supposed to rule the people according to God's will and purposes. David in the Bible was an excellent king. Was he sinless? No. He made some huge mistakes and he paid for them later in his life. But when you study the Old Testament, every other king was compared to David. Right? David was the standard of what a king should be in the mind of God. So you have David was a good king. Ahab was a sinful king. And boy, Ahab and Jezebel, uh, those names kind of ring. Have, have you ever met a child named Ahab? No, you know why? Because the, the stink <laughs> continues to this day. Very few women named Jezebel. You know why? Because the stain continues to this day. These were wicked people. And so in every case, someone could be a faithful prophet, priest, or king, or they could be a wicked prophet, priest, or king. But they were never all three at the same time. And this is significant because Christ is the only human to ever lawfully fulfill the offices of prophet, priest, and king at the same time. In the Old Testament, there were men who fulfilled two of the three offices, but never all three. So, for example, David was a prophet and a king. Solomon was a prophet and a king. Samuel was a prophet and a priest. But anyone who attempted to fulfill all three offices at the same time were judged by God harshly. We won't take time to turn to it, but in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 5 through 14, we see Saul as a new king. The Philistines had gathered together. They were the enemies of God. They had gathered together to attack uh, Israel and their new king. And Samuel said, go here, wait in this place. I'm going to show up at a certain time. I will make a sacrifice to God, and then we will go fight. So Saul gets his troops there. He's waiting. He's waiting. Imagine, imagine the pressure on this new king, the pressure to perform, the pressure to, to not make a mistake. The Philistines are, are arrayed against them. They could attack at any minute. Everybody in Israel is looking to Saul. Why aren't we attacking? What are we supposed to do? What if they attack us tonight? And Saul's like, wait, 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 wait. The pressure must have been immense. And then the day, day comes for Samuel to be there. And he doesn't show up on time. So now what's Saul do? So Saul says, I'm going to make the sacrifice so that God will be pleased. We can't wait for Samuel anymore. It's too stressful. We don't have any other option. I've got to do wrong in order to do right. Do you ever feel that way? See, Satan will always put us in situations where we feel like we have to do wrong in order to do right. And that's never the case. We don't have to do wrong to do right. What we have to do sometimes is wait on God. It's uncomfortable, scary. Wait on God. So Saul offers this burnt offering. And as soon as he offers it, Samuel shows up. Isn't that the way it is? You know, if we just waited... Ten minutes longer, if we just waited another day, we could have done it the right way. So Samuel shows up, 
and he is very upset. He says in verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. Saul, you can be a prophet, and you can be a king, but you can't be the priest too. And because of that, you're done. And all the problems of Saul that come later go back to this one foolish decision. Uzziah, a king, made a a similar situation. He was a smart and affected king, effective king until his heart was lifted up with pride. He was he, he wanted to fulfill the office of a priest, and so one day, uh, he Second Chronicles chapter twenty six, he says, oh, "I'm just going to go offer incense. I want to be a priest too." And the the high priest said, "No, stop! You can't do this." 80 different priests get in his way, and they say, King, stop, please. King, you're not allowed to intrude into the priest's office. Please, King. But the king was lifted up with pride. Who do you think I am? I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. And he grabs that incense, and it was a a, a chain that had a little bowl-looking thing, and they would light the the incense on fire, and and that uh, beautiful, sweet-smelling smoke would come out and fill the room. It was a symbol of the presence of God. It was a symbol of the prayers of God's people going up to God. And as soon as he grabbed that and he he began to to, uh, condemn the priests that were trying to stop him, God gave him leprosy right in the middle of his forehead. Leprosy back then was a death sentence. And not only you were going to die eventually, but it it separated you from the people. The people could not come in contact with you. And Uzziah, as a king, finished out his days as the king of a country living in a leper's home. And God said, no, I don't care if you're a king. You're not going to come into this office without my permission. And so it's significant that Jesus Christ is able and willing and has the stamp of God to be the prophet and the priest and the king at the same time. And so uh, let's talk about how Christ fulfills these offices and how this affects our lives. Number one, Christ is the prophet. Now remember, a prophet represents God to the people. He tells the people what God says. He encourages them to obey God Almighty. Isn't that what Jesus did when he came to earth and started his earthly ministry? He began to tell the people what God said. He began to correct the misteachings of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes. He began to break through the the deadness of the religion they had built upon God's foundation, but it turned into something God never intended it to be. And so Christ said, let me teach you what God really says. Let me teach you what God really expects. And Jesus Christ is not just a prophet. He is the prophet. He's the prophet of God, the Messiah. And I like this. Christ not only explained the word of God, Christ is the living word of God. We learn about that in John chapter 1. But I want to take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. I just want to show you some verses here as we study a few of these things. Luke chapter 1, and we'll move quickly. Luke chapter 1. In 
In verse 76, we see the baby Christ was called a prophet. Luke chapter 1, verse 76, And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way. So the baby Christ was called a prophet. Look at Luke chapter 7. And we'll just stay in one book here for the ease of you looking at it. But I want you to see the black and white of God's word. Luke chapter 7 and verse 16, we see that the common people called Christ a prophet. Luke seven sixteen, and there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God hath visited this people. A look at Luke chapter 13. We see that Christ calls himself a prophet. Luke chapter 13 and verse 33. He says, Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So Christ calls himself a prophet. Look at Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and verse 19, we see the disciples called Christ a prophet. And he said unto them, what things? And they said unto him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. So surely the Bible teaches that Christ was a prophet. We all know that Christ was a prophet, but according to the scripture, Jesus Christ is the ultimate prophet of God. And the ultimate expression of God, from God, to man. Amen? So we see he's a prophet. Number two, Christ is the priest. A prophet represents God to the people. A priest represents the people to God. And so we see that Jesus Christ is not simply a priest. He is the priest. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So he's the ultimate mediator. He is the priest of bringing God and man together, the daysman that would bring God and man together. Now we see that Christ fulfilled the office of the priest in two important ways. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Again, each one of these points could be their own sermon. I love the depth of the scripture, how when you start to study it, it just as deep as you want to go, you could spend a lifetime studying this book and, and um, just begin to scratch the surface. But we see Christ fulfilled the office of a priest in that he offered himself as a sacrifice for the salvation of sinners. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. For all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a sacrifice of covering through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just 
and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Boy, I love that. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. He was buried and rose again. And if you will put your faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, that he did die on the cross to pay for your sin, that he was buried and rose again, then Christ becomes the just justifier of all those who believe. And the the Old Testament priests would offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jesus Christ, as the great high priest, offered himself as the final sacrifice for the sins of all mankind. Look at at, um, Romans chapter 5. But God, verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Commendeth means to be to show or to, to prove or demonstrate. So Christ died for us, verse 9 and 10. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Praise God, we'll never know the, the wrath of God, the eternal penalty on our sin because of, of Christ's blood. Verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Far too much to talk about there today. But what, what a wonderful truth that Christ offered himself for us. So Christ is the, the great high priest. He offered himself as a sacrifice for sinners. But then he fulfills the office of the high priest in that he intercedes on the behalf of the redeemed. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. And look at verse 24. He's talking about the... Hebrews talks... The, the theme of Hebrews is Christ is better. Christ is better than the angels. Christ is better than the law. Christ is better than, than the sacrifices. Christ is better than the, the earthly high priests. In this passage of Scripture, he's comparing Christ as God's great high priest to all the other priests and sacrifices that were ever made. And look up Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. But this man... Because he continueth ever, he's eternal, amen, he's the eternal Son of God, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So he's a priest forever. Verse 25, wherefore, because of this, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Boy, it's so beautiful. So the priest's job was to go to God on behalf of the people. And Jesus, still today, one of his functions is today, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he prays for us. He intercedes for us. And so the great uh, accuser of the brethren comes before God and says, hey, did you see Paul Chapman down there? He sinned. He sinned. He deserves hell. And Jesus says, Father, he's our child. He's under the blood. The penalty's gone. I paid for that. And so Jesus is constantly interceding on our behalf. And the Bible says that we're saved to the uttermost. That means you couldn't be saved anymore. He saved every jot and tittle. Every little corner of your soul, every little little speck of your life is under the blood. You couldn't be any more saved if you tried, and there was an old preacher that used to get excited, and he'd, he'd get to this passage of Scripture, and he'd say, you're so saved, it's pitiful. 
And I'm like, you're like, is that a good thing? You know, you're so saved, but his voice would go up. He'd say, you're so saved, it's pitiful. You know, it's like, that's right. I'm so saved, it's pitiful. Folks, we're saved to the uttermost. Why? Because the high priest of Christ. Look what it says in verse 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He's far above all the earthly priests. Look at verse 27. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And he did what the blood of bulls and goats could never do. He paid for sin once and for all as the ultimate high priest of God. Isn't that a blessing? So we see Christ the prophet. We see Christ Christ the priest. And then lastly, we see Christ the king. A king rules people according to God's will and purposes. Jesus Christ is not simply a king. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. In John 12, 13, we see Christ as the King of Israel. We see in, in 1 Timothy 6, 15, Christ is the King of kings and Lord of Lords. The verse says, which times he shall show. Who is that blessed and only potentate? The King of kings and Lord of Lords. You know what the word potentate means? Pope. Do you know who the Pope is? It's Jesus Christ. There is no Pope in Rome that is the Pope. Jesus Christ, He's the potentate. He's the Pope. He is, he is the, the word potentate speaks of a prince or sovereign of great power. And sometimes they'll call the, the Pope the potentate. Jesus Christ, the Bible says very clearly, Jesus Christ is the only potentate. And He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at Revelation chapter 17. We see He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation chapter 17. Speaking of one of the great end time battles, Revelation 17, verse 14, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. Why? For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. You know, we're going to be with Him one of those days in these last battles. We're not going to have to, to raise our voice. We're not going to have to lift a hand. But we'll be right there with Him, front row seats to the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, so much we could say here. Christ rules all things in heaven and earth. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Christ has no earthly kingdom yet, but He reigns in the hearts of His people. John 18. Christ has an everlasting kingdom as Lord and Savior, 2 Peter 1.11. Christ will reign on the, from Jerusalem on that millennial, in the millennial kingdom from His throne. But let's look at a, a verse here, Revelation 19. Revelation 19, and we looked at this passage recently. But it's still fitting for the subject today. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. We see again one of the final battles. Revelation 19, 15, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, seals all caps, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. I love that. <laughs> He's the king. Let me show you a, a final sad fact. Revelation chapter 20. As the king of kings, Christ will dispense ultimate judgment against those who reject him. Revelation chapter 20, and look at verse 11, speaks of the great white throne judgment. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, that's Christ, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. This is a judgment seat where there's no mercy, there's no grace. This is a final sentencing for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, and we find that in his wrath, even the heaven and the earth flee away. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. That's, those are the books of works. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the final sentencing for those who were in hell. And as the king, Christ has a terrible task to perform. Everybody that's ever lived that has rejected Christ and only sinners will be at this judgment. Those who have been born again, those who've trusted Christ, they won't be here uh, to be judged. We'll probably be spectating, but we won't be here to be judged. We have a different judgment, a judgment of grace called the great white, uh, the, the uh, judgment seat of Christ. But this is a, a sentencing for those who are already condemned to hell. And you notice there he's got the books. Those are the books of works. He's got the book, which is the book of life. Someone stands before God, and it'll work something like this. Someone comes before God, he'll look at the book to see if their name's written in the book of life. It's not. They wouldn't be there if it was. But just to double check, you're not in the book of life. So then we go over the books, and it records every sin that someone has done during their life, and God keeps perfect records. And so that person will have the charges read against them, and then they'll be sentenced to their final resting place, that lake of fire, hell. And folks, I don't say this with, with any joy, but I say it as a fact. As the King of Kings, Christ will dispense ultimate judgment on those that reject Him. If you're here this morning and you're lost, if you're listening online and you're lost, you don't want to take that final breath and die in your sins. You just don't want to. You want to make sure that your heart is right with God, that there's been a time in your life that you acknowledge Christ as the Savior and you accepted His death on the cross for you to pay for your sins buried and rose again and there was a time in your life where you believed in him you asked him to save you if not this is what the end looks like if you are born again then all of us should do two things number one give a big sigh of relief that 
I'm glad I'm not going to be there. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. But number two, we should also be thoughtful of those we know that are not born again. Friends, family, co-workers. And it's incumbent upon us, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's our responsibility to take the gospel to those who are lost. Maybe they don't want to listen. That's between them and the Lord. But it's our responsibility to help them understand. So we see Christ as king. Christ is the only human to ever fulfill the offices of prophet, priest, and king lawfully at the same time. He's a complete savior. Think about this. Christ is a prophet to save us from the ignorance of sin. He's a priest to save us from the guilt of sin. He's a king to save us from the dominion of sin. Christ is all in all. He's the prophet, priest, and king. Amen? Let's bow. Father, thank you for the truth. And Lord, thank you for just so much life-changing information found in this book. And I pray today... And I don't believe it does. I pray it wouldn't fall on deaf ears. I pray that we would not just listen and hear, but to listen with the intention to obey the Word of God and that we could meditate upon you this week, that we could just marvel in your greatness, your awesomeness, and Lord, that we could tell others about you. You're so Amazing, how could we not? Lord, we do pray for our world. 